Well, this is part six in our 12-part series through the book of 1 Corinthians, and if you saw the front cover of today's bulletin, you probably did not think, cool, this should be a great service. Or, or you may have thought, this should be a great service. Today's topic is not an easy or a light one by any stretch of the imagination, but it's a necessary one. It's necessary because it's a life and death matter. It's a highly spiritual matter. It's a matter that makes and breaks marriages and families and churches. And that is the matter of sexual purity among God's people. If you and I claim the name of Jesus Christ, if we call ourselves Christians, then we must listen to what 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and the rest of Scripture has to say on this topic. We cannot afford to look the other way when we come to chapters like this. We cannot afford to gloss over the tough passages in the Word. They are tough for a reason. And that reason is for our benefit. It's for our protection. It's for our unity. It's for our joy. It is ultimately for the honor and glory of God. We live in a day where society and far too many Christians live by these two moral codes, among others. Number one, it's your body. Do what you want. And number two, what you do in private is none of our business. Nothing particularly for believers, nothing could be further from God's truth. And the Scriptures say that those who live by such moral ethics will suffer immensely for it. Thankfully, as is the case for all sin, God offers a better way. Not just another way, not just a religious way. He offers a better way a way of hope and healing and power and joy, a way of pleasure and peace and oneness that far exceeds the momentary delusion of pleasure that sin offers. The non-believer, and again, far too many Christians see the Bible as taking all the fun out of life. As we've seen in the past couple weeks of study, that is nothing more than the foolishness of man trying to instruct and supersede the mind in the ways of God. Sin is not more fun than righteousness. Do not believe the lie that tells you it is so. Instead, as we dive into 1 Corinthians 5, let's remember the words of Jesus in John chapter 15, verses 10 to 11. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love, these things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. That is our prayer for our church family, for ourselves, for our marriages, for our families. So with that, let's open our Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 5, if you haven't already. Listen as I read this chapter. This is Paul's letter, as you know, to the church, the church at Corinth. <clears throat> chapter 5. 
it is actually reported that there is immorality among you. And immorality of such a kind as does not exist even among the Gentiles, that is, the non-believers, the non-Christians, that someone has his father's wife. You have become arrogant and have not mourned instead, so that the one who has done this deed would be removed from your midst. For I, on my part, though absent in body but present in spirit, have already judged him who has so committed this, as though I were present. In the name of our Lord Jesus, when you are assembled and I with you in spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus, I have decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? Clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump, just as you are in fact unleavened. For Christ our Passover also has been sacrificed. Therefore let us celebrate the feast, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. I did not at all mean with the immoral people of this world or with the covetous and swindlers or with idolaters, for then you would have to go out of the world. But actually I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother if he is an immoral person or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Do you not judge those who are within the church? But those who are outside, God judges. Remove the wicked man from among yourselves. Let's pray. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, these are strong words, and yet they are the words of God. Give us, Lord, an ear to hear and a heart to understand. An understanding that recognizes, as difficult as these words may be, they are truth. They are for the blessing of man and the glory of God. Lord, as Graham asked, we pray that your spirit would open our eyes in such a way that we cannot open them for ourselves. These are the words of God, so we need the Spirit of God to tell us what they mean. Lord, in faith and in humility, in our hearts we purpose before even hearing them. We purpose to obey. Only by your grace, Lord. Help us to move forward in the spirit of obedience, recognizing that none of us obeys perfectly. It's only by your grace that we can grow in each of our own faith. So this morning, do a good work for your glory and the blessing of your church, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You can only imagine the fear and trembling with which I approach a chapter like this. My only consolation, not only in the, what we might call difficult texts, 
but also with what might appear to be the simpler texts. My only consolation is in knowing that if I stick to the Word, I'll be just fine. And I'm going to do my utmost to stick to it and rightly divide the Word of Truth with you this morning. But let me remind you, my preaching is not perfect. Only the Word is perfect. And as you know, you have an obligation to study the Word for yourselves and to take what I preach and compare it against the whole of Scripture. This is my first time preaching through this chapter as a whole. And if I stand to be corrected on any point, then so be it. I'm sure by the grace of God, I'll look back 10 or 20 years from now, maybe even one year from now, with a greater understanding and clarification of this text. That's, that's part of the joy of the journey of growing. We don't know it all. There's always more wisdom in the Word of God to be discovered and enjoyed. So if you're willing to move forward with me in that understanding, let's dive into this chapter. And, and as we do, let me encourage you to put on your hiking study boots because we do have a mountain to climb this morning. I had the option of splitting this, this topic into two sermons or just tackling it all at once. And uh, to tell you the truth, I'd much rather just knock it all out at once, if you know what I mean. My prayerful sense is that we'll be better off walking away from here seeing the big picture rather than just half of it. So with that, let's begin with some very important foundational truths. We're going to use four critical interpretation principles that will help us to rightly understand this difficult chapter. Number one, you know this, we're going to study in context. That means we need to remember chapters one through four and the chapters beyond. It would be a terrible mistake for us to study chapter 5 out of the contextual foundation of everything Paul has said in chapters 1 to 4. The major themes in those chapters guide our understanding of chapter 5. They lay a most necessary framework for addressing issues like immorality and pride and strife, etc. So here are some of the themes that we've studied so far. First, in chapter 1, we see the grace of Jesus Christ and the hope of God's faithfulness. We cannot approach the subject of immorality apart from these two. No matter what our personal situation or our private life may be, no matter how great our sins, present, past, or even future, there is a Savior and there is a hope. A Savior to the lost and a Savior to the redeemed who will still make mistakes and fail and sin. There is a grace that not only redeems, but also sanctifies and enlightens and empowers us to faithfully do what is right. We've seen this in the first four chapters. And as we saw last week, we have not been called to a lost battle. Immorality is not a lost battle. It is not even a close call. What did Romans 8, 38, 7 say? On the contrary, we are overwhelmingly conquerors through Him who loved us. A second theme we saw was our life-changing unity with Christ. He unites us with His truth. He grants us His fellowship and gives us His purpose for life. Immorality strikes along with a host of other 
temptations and distractions and issues. Immorality strikes when to some degree or another we begin to substitute God's purpose for living with our purpose. And what is his purpose that Paul pointed out in chapter 1? Third major topic, topic, to proclaim Christ crucified. We're talking about the whole message of healing and hope. We have the privilege of turning to sinners and offering them through Christ the option of forgiveness and joy and peace and fulfillment and right standing with God. Of all people, Christians, those of us who have been the recipients of God's love and His mercy, His wisdom and His power, of all people, Christians should not run from the immoral person or the drunkard or the drug addict or the angry man or the bitter woman or the rebellious teen. Why run when we have the answer and the freedom in our hands? Fourth theme. We looked at this a couple weeks ago. The wisdom of God versus the wisdom of man. Or more accurately put, the wisdom of God versus the foolishness of man. People choose lust. They choose pornography. They choose immorality because they do not see what God sees. They view the issue, the issue differently than Him. It's the only way they could choose fornication or adulterous relationships. If we saw what God sees, we would never choose such destruction and evil. Proverbs 14, 12 speaks to this. There is a way which seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. Number five, one of the themes we studied last week was jealousy. The incredible attitude of jealousy versus a thankful heart, a servant spirit, a willingness to live in the court of the one true judge. Do you think those points have any bearing on immorality? Oh my goodness, yes. Jealousy. As we saw, it's that boiling desire, that molten hot craving for something that God has not allowed me to have. That willingness to damage and defile others to get what I want. We must understand and identify jealousy and the antidotes for it if we were to have victory in this area of moral purity. The last theme I'll mention, and of course there are many others, but the last I'll mention today is the power of God versus the power of man. We saw that it's God alone who causes spiritual growth and victory and consistency. If that's true, then that changes our approach to conquering moral impurity in our own heart and in supporting others. If there is no hope apart from the life-changing influence of God, then we should run to Him for help. We should run to the Word for truth. And by His grace, that's exactly what we'll do this morning. So it's in the context of these four prior chapters that Paul prepares us to address the topic of immorality. 
Here's a second foundational thought, though. We need to look at this topic in its doctrinal context. Its doctrinal context. In this case, I'm referring to God's good creation. Contrary to some Christian opinion and what too many Christian teens and young adults grow up thinking, the sexual relationship is not bad. Before we study immorality, we need to remember what is good and right and beautiful. Scripture teaches us that the relationship and the physical union between a man and a woman did not originate in the so-called evolutionary process. And by no means was it some man or woman's bright idea. Stop with me and ponder the fact that the sexual relationship between a man and a woman was God's idea and God's creation, and He called it very good. Genesis chapter 1, 27 to 28, God created man in His own image. In the image of God, He created him. Male and female, He created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And just a few verses later, verse 31, God saw all that He made, and behold, it was very good. Now fast forward all the way into the New Testament, Matthew 19, verses 4 to 6, and find, we find Jesus Himself saying, Have you not read that He who created them from the beginning made them male and female, and said, For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What God has joined together, let no man separate. What God has joined together. This is a divine relationship. What's also astoundingly wonderful is that God created marriage between a man and a woman to represent and to be a picture of Christ and His church. You know this. The closest most intimate, most pleasurable of all human relationships is just a picture of the oneness and wonder and beauty of a divine relationship, and that is of Christ and His bride, the church. Marriage is a picture of the most desired relationship, oneness with Christ. Ephesians chapter 5, 28 to 32, teaches us these truths, among other passages. It says, He who loves his own wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church, because we are members of his body. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is great, but I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. When God made marriage, the husband-wife relationship, He made it very good. But as we know, there ain't nothing good that Satan isn't doing his best to mess up, doing his best to destroy everything that is divinely good, doing everything possible to rob God of the glory He receives from the pure goodness of His creation and especially the goodness of His redemption. And isn't it interesting that the unique relationship of marriage, that divinely loving picture of Christ and His church, is one of Satan's chief targets. 
It's an outright attack on the bride of Christ, as well as an assault on the most basic God-designed unit of civilization, the family. Because of the immeasurable and devastating damage that immorality causes, spiritually, emotionally, and physically, because of the damage sin causes to the beauty of the marriage relationship, it's no wonder that Scriptures are full of warnings, cautions, and commands to abstain from immorality. This is no trivial matter. Here's a third foundational principle to keep in mind as we study this big topic. We need to understand that immorality is a God issue. 1 Thessalonians 4, 2-8, For you know what commandments we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. That is, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in lustful passion like the Gentiles who do not know God, and that no man transgress and defraud his brother in the matter because the Lord is the avenger in all these things, just as we told you before and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for the purpose of impurity, but in sanctification. Listen to this. So he who rejects this is not rejecting man, but the God who gives His Holy Spirit to you. Immorality is an outright rejection of God. We must understand this. When we choose immorality, we do not choose God. King David understood this, that this was a God issue when he repented of his sin to Bathsheba. Psalm 51.4, against you, you only, I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Bless you, man. Paul was preparing us for this truth in chapter 3 of 1 Corinthians. Verse 16, do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? Looking ahead to chapter 6, verse 15. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take away the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Listen to the wording. Shall I then take away not the members of my body? Shall I take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? May it never be. Verse 18. Flee immorality. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? For you have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. Scripture teaches us that immorality is not a private issue. It's a God issue. It's a glory of God issue. It's a temple of God issue. Contrary to popular opinion, the biblical truth is this. It is not your body. At least not if you're a Christian. Fourth foundational study principle that we need to apply today. That is that we consider the whole of Scripture. On this topic of sexual purity, we find a wealth of commands and lessons, truths, warnings, and promises 
that properly shape our view of 1 Corinthians 5. Now, I have not put all these cross-references on the screen for you today. There are so many of them, and I just didn't have it in my heart to do that to the PowerPoint person. So listen closely, and if you're taking notes and you want to study this topic more later, remember, you can, you can watch the live stream later if you would like. And, and if I'm going to be in a cross-reference for a while this morning, I will try to remember to, to encourage you to turn your Bibles there so you can study along. Most of the verses, though, will be short, so you just want to listen closely. So considering the whole of Scripture, first we have one of the Ten Commandments, Exodus 20, 14, thou shalt not commit adultery. In the case of incest, which is what we're looking at in 1 Corinthians 5, Scripture speaks right to it. Leviticus 18 and Deuteronomy 22, 30, a man shall not take his father's wife. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians 4, verses 17 to 24. So this I say and affirm together with the Lord, that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of their mind. There again is the foolishness of man's wisdom. Being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart, and they having become callous have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. There's a sense of that jealousy that Paul hit on last week. Verse 20, but you did not learn Christ in this way. If needed, you have heard him and have been taught in him, just as truth is in Jesus, that in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit. There's the lie, the lie of sin. That is false advertising at its worst. And that you, here's the situation, the solution. Be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. That's a very interesting truth point to observe there. The righteousness of the truth the holiness of the truth. It's why we need the truth of God's Word so desperately. It's why we must be avid students of the Word. Righteousness and holiness cannot be obtained apart from truth. They are inseparable. Listen to the insights of Romans chapter 1. Go ahead and turn there. Romans 1, 21 to 32. Romans 20, uh, chapter 1. Verse 21, for even though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God. We learn here there's a big difference between knowing about God and actually honoring Him as God. They did not honor Him as God or give thanks. Both of those were addressed by Paul in the chapters we recently studied. They did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Therefore, God gave them over. Remember that phrase. Same one, similar to what we have in 1 Corinthians 5, where Paul delivers the wicked man over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. More on that later. Therefore, God gave them over in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, 
so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature. There's the heart of it. Rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions. For their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way also, the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire toward one another, men with men, committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper, being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossip, slanders, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful, and although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. This is exactly what Paul is addressing in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Scripture clearly warns of the consequences and the penalty of immorality. 1 Corinthians 10, 6-8, nor let us act immorally, immorally as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in one day. If you go back into the Old Testament and study this, you see that God took the lives of 23,000 of them because of the sin and idolatry of immorality. The idolatry of immorality. Immorality is a form of idolatry. Revelation 21.8, but for the cowardly and unbelieving and, and abominable and murderers and immoral persons and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. We go back to the Old Testament. The Proverbs speak much to this. Proverbs 6.32, the one who commits adultery with a woman is lacking sense. He's stupid. He who would destroy himself does it. Proverbs 6, 27 to 29, can a man take fire in his bosom and his clothes not be burned? Or can a man walk on hot coals and his feet not be scorched? So is the one who goes into his neighbor's wife. Whoever touches her will not go unpunished. Hebrews 13, 4, marriage is to be held in honor among all, and the marriage bed is to be undefiled. For fornicators, that is sex before marriage, and adulterers, that is sex outside of one's marriage, God will judge. That's why we advocate for abstinence before marriage, quite opposite the world's approach. Very much so, God's way for believers and for all men and women. Job said this in Job 31, 1-4, I have made a covenant with my eyes. How then could I gaze at a virgin? That's a powerful, powerful secret to moral purity. And what is the portion of God from above or the heritage of the Almighty from on high? Is it not calamity to the unjust and disaster to those who work iniquity? Does He not see my ways and number all my steps? 
Those are incredible words of wisdom from Job. What specifically are the results of lust and sexual sin? Calamity and disaster. Not just from those around the offending person, as this always destroys relationships, but rather from God Himself. In His time, God will ruin the life of the immoral man or woman. But again, all this judgment and consequence that we've read about is with, not without hope if a person repents and turns back toward God. Grace is always greater, James 4, 6. And we also know that God disciplines those whom He loves, Hebrews 12, 6. And as we see all throughout the history of the Old Testament, that incredible view of how God literally responds and interacts with mankind, we see throughout the Old Testament that sometimes His discipline was very severe because that was the best hope for repentance, freedom, and reconciliation with God. <clears throat> Back into the New Testament, Ephesians 5, 3 to 12, but immorality and, or any impurity or greed must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. And there must be no filthiness and silly talk or coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. For this you know with certainty that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Verse 11, do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but instead even expose them. For it is disgraceful even to speak of the things which are done by them in secret. That's a verse, just as a side note here, that cautions us about what we allow ourselves to be entertained by on the television. Galatians 5, 19 to 25, now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality. Verse 22, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Let us not become, listen to these, boastful, challenging one another, envying one another. There we see it again. Again, Galatia had the same problems as Corinth. These are the same three attitudes Paul has been hitting on for the first four chapters in this book. And it's the same issues in Rome, the same issues in Ephesus. Do you think that perhaps Gig Harbor needs these truths today? Perhaps our own church family. Perhaps you. Perhaps me. Before we jump into chapter 5, let me quickly address some common objections to the strong nature of chapter 5, particularly in reference to how the church is supposed to remove any person who is grossly and unrepentantly living immorally. I believe these objections often come from people who simply don't want to obey them. But I also believe they sometimes honestly come to the mind of good, sincere Christians. They've come to my mind. Some of these have. 
So I want to briefly do what I can to put some of these to rest so that we can move forward and rightly divide chapter 5. First objection, but Jesus was a friend to sinners. How many of you have heard that one? comes from Luke chapter 7, 34. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, Behold, a gluttonous man and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Jesus had a reputation of being a friend to sinners. But we must remember that Jesus was not just a friend to sinners. He is also their judge. And there comes a point in his relationship with unrepentant sinners that their response to him demands a different response from him. We see this in Romans 2, 4 to 8. Or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God who will render to each person according to his deeds. To those who by perseverance in doing good seek for glory and honor and immortality, eternal life. But to those who are selfishly ambitious and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, wrath and indignation. That's what they call upon themselves. Here's another related question or objection. But Jesus ate with sinners. Why shouldn't we eat with them? I'll address that one when we get to that verse today. Objection number three. Jesus warned against casting the first stone. Actually, a careful study of that passage clearly reveals that Jesus did not say to never confront sin or exercise discipline. The whole purpose of that conversation which is one that we should take very careful note of, was for Jesus to teach the Pharisees that they were hypocrites. He pointed out that they were guilty of the exact sins they were ready to execute the prostitute for. Jesus also revealed in that situation his power to forgive. When he said to the woman, I do not condemn you. Go and sin no more. Praise God for His forgiveness. Here's a fourth common but incorrect objection to 1 Corinthians 5. What about Galatians 6.1? If anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. Again, we must read the word for exactly what it's saying. If anyone is caught in any trespass. The man being addressed in 1 Corinthians 5 was not caught in sin. He had been living in sin and had been there for a long time, unabashedly, unrepentantly, unceasingly living in gross sin, and everyone knew it. Even then, nothing in Galatians 6 says that the discipline of removing that person from the church should not be done gently and lovingly and with a vision for healing and restoration. For now we see that in some way, this 1 Corinthians chapter and this 1 Corinthians approach to immorality will in no way conflict with Jesus being a friend of sinners, eating with them, not casting the first stone, and the obligation we have to gently pursue restoration 
in those who are caught in sin. Sadly, many Christians attempt to pit the Word of God against the Word of God. It's easy to pick and choose what we want to hear and to shape words to mean what we want them to mean. But we need to remember and operate from the truth that the mind of God will never conflict with the mind of God. There is no error in the thinking of the Almighty. There is no contradiction in His Word. We interpret all Scripture in the light of all Scripture. We now come to our text for today, 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Forgive me for the long introduction. If you're thinking that I might be avoiding the text, you're probably not all wrong. <clears throat> but seriously, it's in the context of all Scripture, which is the wisdom of God, that it becomes much easier, if I could even use that word, to understand 1 Corinthians 5. We are lost at sea apart from the context of Scripture when we come to difficult passages like this. Let's quickly work our way through this chapter. Verse 1, here we see the degree of severe sin. It is actually reported that there is immorality among you, an immorality of such a kind as does not even exist among the Gentiles, the non-believers, that someone has his father's wife. The Greek word used here for immorality is porneia. That's the word we get pornography from. And its general usage all throughout the New Testament is to indicate exactly what your Bibles say. Immorality, sexual immorality, fornication, any extramarital and unbiblical sexual activity, including homosexuality and the numerous other forms of behavior we see today, which is nothing new, by the way. Deuteronomy addressed all of it. Paul goes on in verse 1, however, to specify the gross immorality of incest, a man marrying or having a physical relationship with his father's wife, likely his stepmother. Verse 2, you have become, speaking to the church, you have become arrogant and have not mourned so that the one who had done this deed would be removed from your midst. Here we see the wrong response to severe sin. First, the degree of severe sin, now the wrong response to it, and that is arrogance. In some way, they were puffed up over this. Either, either they were proud of the sin, or they were too proud to acknowledge the sin in their midst, or perhaps they were proud of their tolerance of such sinners. This is an incorrect acceptance of everyone mentality, a caution for the contemporary church. Paul decried their arrogance in this matter. Secondly, he noted that there was a shocking lack of godly sorrow. You have not mourned, he said. You'll never find pride and godly sorrow acting simultaneously in a person or in a church. They are an impossible pair. Paul specifically says that mourning should precede removing this person from the church who continues in such severe sin. Sadly, the church all too often exercises discipline at whatever level apart from their own mourning 
and godly grieving. They lack deep spiritual sorrow. We as parents can learn from this. This is a devastating mistake on the part of the church. Thirdly, in regards to the wrong response, Paul points out that the church leadership failed to remove the grossly immoral person from the fellowship of the church. In a general sense, it should be noted and understood that the church has a responsibility in the most severe of times to excommunicate, to remove from fellowship, to put out of the church anyone who claims the name of Christ and unabashedly, unrepentantly continues in severe sin. Your church leaders understand this and humbly purpose to follow through on such an imperative in Scripture. More on this in the following verses. Verse 3, For I, on my part, though absent in body but present in spirit, have already judged him who has so committed this as though I were present. Paul says there is no discussion on this point. It doesn't matter what the circumstances or excuses might be. He doesn't need to be there. He doesn't need to be there to hear the rest of the story. This is an undisputed, unequivocal, uncontestable matter. Verse 4, in the name of our Lord Jesus, when you are assembled and I with you in spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus, I have decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of, our, of the Lord Jesus. Here we see the right response to severe sin. First, we observed in verse 4 that this is not Paul's opinion. This command and judgment carries the authority and the power of the Lord Jesus. This is what Jesus says to do. So for the church, in addition to humility and mourning, which we've already observed, verse 5 says, deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. Let's be very practical here. What in the world does that mean? Going back into the Old Testament, Psalm 81, 11 to 16, God said, but my people did not listen to my voice and Israel did not obey me. There's a strong sense here of for a long time. So I gave them over to the stubbornness of their heart to walk in their own devices. We see here a sense of letting them go to their sin. Turn to the New Testament, Acts 7, 39 to 42. Speaking of Israel in the Old Testament, Paul says, our fathers were unwilling to be obedient to him, that is to Moses, after he came down from Mount Sinai with the law of God, but repudiated him. Some of your translations, translations say, thrust him aside, I take that to mean that they violently and recklessly rebelled against Moses. There's a sense of get out of our way. That's the violent level of severity that we're talking about here and in 1 Corinthians 5. We need to keep that level of severity in mind. The verse goes on to say, and in their hearts turned back to Egypt. That, what's Egypt? The place of bondage from which they had been freed. Saying to Aaron, Make for us gods who will go before us. For this Moses who led us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what happened to him. 
At that time, they made a calf, the golden calf, and brought a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. But God turned away and delivered them up to serve the host of heaven. That is, to worship the sun, the moon, the stars, the planets, etc., their own false gods. And God let them go to their idols. 1 Timothy 1, 18 to 20. Fight the good fight, keeping faith in a good conscience, which some have rejected and suffer shipwreck in regards to their faith. Among these are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan so that they will be taught not to blaspheme. We don't know much about Hymenaeus and Alexander, but we do know this from this text. Number one, they rejected the faith. They rejected a good conscience. Their wickedness had reached catastrophic proportions. They knew better. And finally, they chose to blaspheme God instead. Paul had no choice but to let them go to the dominion of Satan. That is the world. To remove them from the church. Outside the fellowship, the joy, the protection of the body of Christ. Perhaps things had come to the point where Paul knew these unbelievers were becoming increasingly calloused to truth. We saw that word in one of the scriptures before. Perhaps Paul sensed that the comforts and the fellowship of the church were easing and even masking the pain of their sin. And in a sense, the church was not only accommodating their sin, but perhaps even enabling their sin. And he knew that their evil was influencing the church. It is also critical to note here in verse 20, just as we see in our 1 Corinthians text, that the purpose of letting them go was not to destroy them. It wasn't because Paul could stand to be around sinners. It wasn't because he was too good for them. It wasn't because he was impatient or an angry man. It was not to leave them in sin or to send them to hell. It was none of these things. Quite the opposite. The goal was that what? They would learn not to blaspheme. Because blasphemers have their part in the lake of fire. And what is Paul's goal in the 1 Corinthians text we've read? Why does he deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh? So that his spirit may be saved. There's a life-saving sense at work here. We as believers, we as the church, must understand this. It was not a disgust with the person's sin that drives him to exercise discipline. It was a longing for salvation. This was a rescue attempt. How sad when we see quite the opposite in the church. We learn an incredible discipline principle here. In the worst cases of sin, when fellowship is hindering repentance, when association is negatively influencing the body of Christ towards sin, in these worst case scenarios, if a person must be removed from the church or any other severe discipline be administered, it should not be without a vision for restoration. It must overall be a life-saving effort. If we administer discipline 
and don't have in long-term view the goal of repentance and salvation, something is almost surely wrong with the discipline. If the end goal of discipline is pain and justice, we have failed Christian discipline. If the end goal is to just get their bad influence out of the church or out of the home or whatever the case may be, then we have failed the whole of Christian discipline. The goal is salvation. The goal is truth in the heart of that person, especially those who claim the name of Jesus Christ. The goal is redemptive. That is a vital element when it comes to the motivation for discipline. Now, let me quickly point out in regards to the phrase, destruction of the flesh, that there is a little uncertainty, even among the many of the commentaries I've read, whether that refers to the destruction of the physical body or the destruction of the flesh, the, the internal, the carnal, worldly desires. If it refers to the physical body, we see this truth clearly evident in Matthew chapter 5, 27 to 30. Jesus said, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye makes you stumble, tear it out and throw it away. Throw it from you. For it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. If your right hand makes you stumble, cut it off and throw it from you. For it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. So if we struggle with sin, should we cut off part of our body? Is the scripture advocating mutilation? Absolutely not. You have to read the whole of scripture. We have to understand the intent of the passage itself. The Bible is saying that we should repent and flee immorality. We should run from sin. And Jesus is making the point that if we had to choose, and we don't, but if we did, it would be better to have our physical body destroyed than, and to be eternally saved than for the body to be spared, but the person to spend eternity in hell. Is there anything in this passage that we don't agree with? This is an obvious, clear truth. It highlights the awfulness of sin and the value of repentance. Likewise, Paul recognizes the deathly consequences of such depraved immorality. A person that steeped in sin, that defiant toward God, is probably standing on the brink of eternal death. There's a valid fear that they might not even be saved in the first place, as we'll see in a minute. On the other hand, if this phrase in verse 5 is referring to the destruction of the flesh, the carnal nature, the sinful desires, then perhaps Paul is referring to the impact we saw in the parable of the prodigal son. That young man experienced the fruit of sin so completely, he hit rock bottom so hard that by the mercy of God, it finally drove him to his spiritual senses, and he repented. Praise God, many of us have witnessed this. Some of us have experienced it. Praise God that mercy and forgiveness are in love, are even found at the rock bottom. God is so patient 
and merciful. Now, in regards to turning someone over to Satan, if this perhaps means something more spiritual, I'm not at the point of that power being passed on to mankind. We have to remember, the, this is the Apostle Paul speaking here. Look at the words carefully. He did not say the church should deliver someone to Satan. We're talking about the Apostle Paul, who met personally with Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus, who was empowered in a most amazing apostolic way. Remember uh, Ananias and Sapphira, he had the ability to strike them dead on the spot in the church when they lied to the church. Last I checked, we don't have that ability. So look carefully at the words of text. Paul says, I have delivered the one to Satan. Perhaps if we had a much higher level of spirituality, we might understand some of these things. What does Paul say the church is supposed to do? Simply remove the person steeped in sin from the church. Again, though, we don't think lightly or out of context when we hear such strong words. Verse 6, your boasting is not good. It's interesting to note in this chapter that Paul's main focus, his main concern, his main charges are not against the immoral person. They are against the church. Yes, the man was sinning and needs to be removed from the fellowship of the church and left to his own devices at this point. But Paul has a rather lengthy list of charges against the church. He reminds them here in very straightforward terms, your boasting is not good. Verse 6 continues, do you not know? I mean, this is supposed to be obvious. Everybody's supposed to know this. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? The implication is very simple. A little sin affects a lot of people. One person's sin can have a massive impact on the whole church. This is a very important lesson. When a person sins, or excuse me, when a person says, what I do is none of your business, that's true if they're from the world. But it's not true if they claim to be a part of the body of Christ. Their sin does impact all of us. Your sin impacts all of us. My sin impacts all of us. And the church has a responsibility to consider the wider impact when dealing with the offending person. Sometimes we must discipline in part for the protection of the whole church. Verse 7, clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump, just as you are, in fact, unleavened. What is Paul saying there? Act like what you are. You're, a fo you're followers of Christ, so act like it. He goes on to say, For Christ our Passover also has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us celebrate the feast, not with the old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Time doesn't allow us today to dive into a study of the leaven and the Passover. How I wish it did. You can study it on your own with a, with a good Bible, study Bible or a few commentaries. It's a fascinating short study. The leaven, it's not just, many agree, it's not just referring to the least, the yeast. It has to do with the, the portion of dough used from last week. For with the time we have, I would like to draw your attention to the last part of verse 8 here. Malice and wickedness. 
versus sincerity and truth. Notice, it is not enough to be sincere. We must also be true. We must be right. It is not enough to be authentic, honest, and open. We must also have the truth. Contemporary Christianity, especially among young adults, seems to be placing a lot of value on authenticity. That's fine. That's good. That's actually very important as long as it is governed by truth, by the truth of God's Word, and vice versa. It's easy to hammer home on truth, but if it's it's void of sincerity, that hammering of truth is also in error. Verse 9, I wrote you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. Again, notice, this is not the first time Paul has written to the church on this very issue. We're talking about Christians who blaspheme the testimony of grace by repeatedly and consistently living in sin. Consequently, there is no uncertainty in Paul's mind on this matter of disassociation. Verse 10, I did not, all mean, I did not at all mean with the immoral people of this world or with the covetous or swindlers or with idolaters, for then you would have to go out of the world. Verse 11, but actually I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother if he is an immoral person or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or a swindler, not even to eat with such a person. So-called brother, anyone who professes to be a Christian. The ESV says not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother. Notice that by using this choice wording, a so-called brother, Paul leaves open the possibility that they very well may not even be Christians. Regardless of whether they're saved, they're claiming the name of Christ, and that dictates a strong response from the church for the sake of the name of Christ and for the witness of the church. 1 Peter 2, 11 and 12, Behold, I urge you as aliens as foreigners and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, that is the non-church, the non-believer, so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. What a tragedy when the world slanders the church for the sin in the church. On the contrary, Paul says it should be the other way around. They should be wrongfully slandering the church, but then realize by the church's faithful actions and their good testimony that the world was wrong in their accusations, and in the end, they have to give glory to God. 2 Thessalonians 3, 14 and 15, if anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter, Take special note of that person and do not associate with him so that he will be put to shame. Yet do not regard him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. We cannot forget words like this. If and when we make mistakes and fail, we will appreciate others remembering verses like this when they come and confront us. There is great wisdom in these words. Again, disassociation 
when it's appropriate, must be a discipline of love. Remember, they are our brothers and sisters in Christ. Consider the phrase, not even to eat with such a one. So what does that mean? If, some, if someone is seriously sinning and not repenting, are we not even supposed to eat a meal with them? Well, I'm no gra- English grammar specialist, but I'm pretty sure that's exactly what it says. Right? There's an important study principle at play here. We study it from what it says, not from what we don't think it says, and not from what we want it to say. We study it from what it says. For starters, we take the verse in cultural, historical context. In those times, as is still the case in a number of Middle Eastern countries, you know this, opening your door to someone and sharing a meal with them is a very strong symbol of friendship, of acceptance, of association, and even of protection. We cannot forget that cultural context and just apply the no meal command to everyone we see sinning. I believe the heart of the matter in this passage is not, however, in the word meal, but in the word association, translated in some of your Bibles as keep company. If your best friend is a believer who is living in immorality and you haven't lovingly challenged their lifestyle with the Word of God, and instead you're hanging out with him or her as your preferred company, then I believe Scripture is telling you that something is bad wrong. And here's the heart of it. If we know that immorality, as we've seen in all these cross-references, if we know that immorality is such an affront to God, such a blasphemy of the holiness of Christ and His bride, such a defilement of the perfect and good creation that He ordained, then how can we enjoy company with that person and have no shame associating with them? Let me put it this way. If I knew a man raped my wife, how could I possibly keep company and associate myself as a friend of that person? Impossible. Christians have largely failed to properly address immorality because they don't even know what it is they're looking at. This is why Bible study and doctrine are so important, so critical to right understanding and behavior for Christians. We need to understand the holiness of God that Graham prayed for earlier. We need to understand the relationship of Christ and His church. We need to understand what will happen in the end times, who will be judged and for what. These doctrines change our life values. They radically modify our behavior. They change our opinions. It's time for us to understand and see immorality for what it is. It's not just an offense against the defrauded person. It's a tremendous vile sin against God and the entire body of Christ. It breaks fellowship with God and it destroys churches and families, particularly for those 
who claim the name of Christ. We need to remember in this text, we're not talking about the world. We're talking about so-called Christians. Perhaps now we're getting a little better sense of why Paul would command us not to associate with immoral people like the ones in this chapter. Instead of thinking, wow, don't you think that's kind of harsh and intolerant? Instead of that kind of response, we should begin to mourn. At the heart of our mourning, or I should say the heart of our mourning is not for the sinner suffering in sin. We mourn for the God he blasphemes. We mourn for the church that he or she defiles. And yes, our heart also breaks for the sinner. Ultimately, though, immorality is a God issue. If you or I have an immoral Christian friend whose company we keep, according to the whole of Scripture, it's time for us to take action and lovingly, gently ask if they realize that their lifestyle radically rejects God and His commandments. But we must also keep in mind what verse? 1 Corinthians 10, 12. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. If in the course of reaching out to a friend in such sin, if they continue to reject God after much persuasion and after the Matthew 18 process of confronting sin, then it's time for the church to part paths with them. Not because, again, not because we can't stand to be around them. We were all once sinners. We are all still sinners, redeemed. It's not because we can't stand to be around them. It's not because we hate them. This has nothing to do with hate. God forbid that there would be an ounce of hate in our heart towards sinners. It has everything to do with polar opposite values and life direction. No matter how hard we try, two people going in the opposite direction cannot go there together. Joshua set an ex excellent example for us in Joshua 24, 14 to 15. Now therefore, fear the Lord and serve Him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. Listen closely. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your fathers served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. That is the loving message we give to believers who are moving away from God. Go where you want. I have to follow him. Again, this issue isn't so much between us and them, though. It's ultimately between them and God. And we should love God more than man. And if we have to choose between God and man, then we choose God. And yes, we have to choose. The Bible says so right here. 1 Corinthians 5. That's what I believe this scripture and all the cross-references are teaching us. And if eating a meal together or hanging out or enjoying our hobby together associates us and the church with them, and if it evidences a lack of remorse in, in the church, and if it shames the name of Christ and indicates to the world that we tolerate sin because it's not so bad, then it's time to part paths. 
hoping and praying for their repentance, just as God has been so merciful to us. Does it mean we write them off and never talk again? No. I'm not sure it even means that we can't let them attend services. I'd welcome such a person to come and sit under the preaching of the Word from whoever's preaching. It does mean that we treat them like an unbeliever, though. Matthew 18, 17. They can't become a member. They can't teach. And in the case of blasphemous behavior, we ask them to leave the church, praying that they will come to their spiritual senses when perhaps they hit rock bottom. Praise God, again, His love and His mercy are found there too. As to sending someone away, I trust our hearts are in this together. It is absolutely vital that we make the path back of repentance a smooth and easy and short journey. God forbid that the pride and the hatred and the ungratefulness and the arrogance and the lack of remorse of sin in our hearts would burn bridges so badly with an offending sinner that it becomes difficult for them to come back, not to us, but to come back to God. Oh, God, give us a heart of love. Our prayer should be that when we speak truth, hard truth to the sinning person, they perhaps might say, I will have none of it. But perhaps they will also say, I know that person still loves me. That is a testimony of the grace and the power of God that has been realized by a person. God has been so good to us. How can we not share that same mercy and forgiveness and compassion even with the one with whom we must administer, according to the Word of God, the most severe forms of church discipline? We do need to make sure that we keep all this in context. Before we start slamming the door shut on any, any believer who's struggling in their faith, remember, we need to remember what Paul is talking about here and how to treat a person, and that is how to treat a person who is living in incest or a person living in sexual immorality who knows better and defiantly and arrogantly refuses to obey the Word of God on the matter. And it's not just immoral people in the sense of sexual morality, but also, what does he include? The covetous, the idolaters, the revilers, the drunkards, the swindlers, and anyone who is like sinning to such a severe degree. Paul is talking about shipwrecked, God-rejecting blasphemers, violent, vocal enemies of the cross who happen to call themselves Christians. We cannot forget this context. Hopefully, before sin ever gets to that point in a believer, hopefully the church has long since been doing their part, and hopefully the church has long since taken many steps of action that are gentle and appropriate and humble and teaching in nature that are prayerful, that are exemplary, that are supportive and mourning with a godly sorrow, and that, of course, 
offer restoration and victory. Verse 12, for what have I to do with judging outsiders? Do you not judge those who are within the church? But those who are outside, God judges. Remove the wicked man from among yourselves. Friends, if you are struggling with sexual purity in behavior or even in thought, I urge you in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to repent, to stop sinning, and to run from it no matter what you feel like inside. Flee immorality. Fear God. Go to the Word and understand His holiness and understand how immorality blasphemes Him and His great love and your relationship with your church family. Live out the spiritual reality of Galatians 5, verse 24. Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Meditate on Galatians chapter 5, that powerful text that talks about the fruit and the strength, the victorious strength of the Holy Spirit defeating the flesh. None of us can willpower our way to moral purity. I also encourage you to apply what Paul has already given us in the prior four chapters. Do not underestimate the power of humbling one's opinion to the mind and word of God. Do not underestimate the power of allowing God through His word and through prayer and through repentance. Don't underestimate the power of God to purge a person of jealousy and covetousness and idolatry. Do not underestimate the power, the cleansing power that goes to work when we spend our lives proclaiming the message of Christ crucified rather than living for ourselves. These things strengthen the inner man and protect us from temptation. Before I close, if you are continually not getting victory in this area, I humbly and I lovingly invite you to come to the elders of the church. Women, go to the elders' wives. We are not the answer to this very real struggle that in a sense is killing the church day by day. We are not the answer to this struggle, but we know the one who is, and we will do our best to humblingly and lovingly point you to Scripture. We will come alongside you as we both continue to grow in our faith. Let's close with the hope of 1 Corinthians 10, 13. <clears throat> no temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also, so that you will be able to endure it. That is a promise to live by. May God give our church family the grace to overwhelmingly conquer the evil of immorality so that we might bask in the joy and the freedom of moral purity. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we all know that on the other side of the door of immorality is great pain 
and suffering and shame and death. But we also know that on the other side of sin, there is another door, and that is the door to eternal life. Jesus Christ, the one who came and was crucified for all our sins. Lord, I pray that if there is one here today who has not understood and experienced the forgiveness of sin, the freedom of guilt, the joy of belonging to God, the joy of, in, of being a part of the fellowship of the church, of God's people, how I pray that they will repent of sin and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, that he died for their sin, that he came back to life, conquered the curse of sin, conquered death, and that he promises to come again. Grant that individual the grace to believe the word of God, pick up their cross, and follow you. Oh, Lord, for those of us who have received such wonderful love and mercy, Remind us that we too need such grace, lest any of us fall. Lord, how our hearts break to see a brother or sister in Christ fall. Help us to be personally close to the Word of God, that the Word of God might daily help us to overwhelmingly conquer sin. But Lord, help us also to be close to the Word of God so that we can come alongside those who are struggling. And as the friends of the lame man lowered him through the rooftop to Jesus where he was healed, and when Jesus said, based on the faith of your friends, I will heal you, Lord, help there to be that kind of friend faith in this church family. Let us not run from the sins of others. Let us love them to the cross just like others have done for us, like indeed your Son has done. How we praise you for the victory we find in Jesus Christ. Lord, help us to stand and to stand strong in that victory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.